0: This is uh, Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, where I'm very pleased to have as my special guest today from Las Vegas, Winston Wu, who's a longtime student of conspiracies. He has a marvelous page uh, about a conspiracy trilogy. He calls it his Conspiracy Trilogy Report, The Moon Hoax, JFK and 9-11, which you can find at debunkingskeptics.com slash conspiracies with a capital C dot htm it's a really excellent piece of work but today we're going to talk about other issues not heretofore subjects of discussion on the real deal Winston it's a real pleasure to have you here
1: hey Jim it's great to talk to you again
0: tell me tell me tell me first of all how you got involved in conspiracy research what led you in this direction before we turn to the subject of discussion today well
1: you know I've always been a free thinker, and when you think for yourself, you kind of look for alternative truths, especially if the official truth doesn't sound right or doesn't feel right. And so I've always been a truth seeker and looking at all sides of the issue, and you know, not just about one event or, or, or this, but just about life in general. So it's just a mentality where you think for yourself – and you follow the evidence, just like you do. And you don't just take on faith, anything you hear.
0: Did you come through the American educational system or, or uh, Taiwanese?
1: Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And I came to the United States when I was three. So I pretty much grew up in the in the America, so, yeah.
0: So you're a public school graduate, or did you... Go to a private institution. I'm just a little interested in your background because it's unusual. You know, I think you bring a lot of resources to these issues.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, well I, well, I grew up in a public school, and then you know, I went to a junior college, and then to a state university, and then I uh, majored in marketing and, and computer information systems. So, yeah, I mean, I don't. Most
0: of the stuff I learn is from. Um, self-taught and just—you um, never actually studied philosophy or critical thinking, for example. You simply, you know, put it together along the way.
1: Yeah, I, I take bits and pieces from everyone, like you and other people, and you know, I—I'm kind of eclectic. I take truths from different sources, even from religion, from spirituality, from philosophy, uh, even from paranormal science. Um, and and even some some of the new age stuff. So I just take a little bit of everything and try to look at a whole picture and evaluate using my best judgment. And, you know, that's all anyone can do, you know, is to go with what you got, you know, and to learn a little bit from everything and everyone.
0: Now, based based upon our previous previous exchange, I have the impression that you... Believe there are some major fallacies that affect the conspiracy movement in general. I'm interested uh, to begin with in how you would define the conspiracy movement, and then you know what you regard some of those major fallacies to be.
1: Okay, yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about because um, I've been following the conspiracy movement for a long time. I mean, not just you, but you know, people like Alex Jones and David Icke and Michael Tosserian and all those. Um, people that, you know, are are really good researchers and and they have a lot of good information. But one fallacy that they make is that they assume that everything in America is the same everywhere else in the other two countries and that the people in America um, represent everyone in the world. So, you know, whatever, you know, is a problem in America is, is is a problem. Everywhere, in, in other words, America equals the world, and that's a really big fallacy because I've been to 12 countries, and I can tell you many differences, and I even spent a year in Russia, so, um, so I've lived long term in several different cultures, and, and there's just a lot of differences that if people knew could help people because there are some problems in several areas in America that um, could be solved or, or made a lot better. By going overseas, you know, and, and seeking a solution there, and um, I, I feel like it's my mission to discuss that, to share that that secret, that message. That, um, for example, I can tell you about three health secrets that you won't hear about in America because there's no profit in um, in, in letting people know about it, but it would help a lot of people, um, and I, and I could get into that, but. Um, for the la- you know, since 2007, I've been running a movement on a website called HappierAbroad.com, and it's really taken off. And it, it's 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 a website to um, tell people that, you know, they can have a better life in in a lot of ways overseas, and that there are solutions to the problems you have here overseas. And um, and I felt that that. This is not really publicized, okay, in the alternative, not just the mainstream media, but the alternative media. For some reason, it's not publicized, and, and I think I know why. Because, I mean, I think there's several reasons. One is that um, there's this mentality in America that um, that all problems in America must be solved in America within the country and never with, um, from outside so there's that mentality it's just an assumption you know kind of a like a major fallacy and the second reason is you know like i said earlier people assume that america is the world so everything in america is the same everywhere so and all the conspiracy people that i've listened to assume that and you know personally i know that's not true so you know i wanted to give many examples why and and these are examples you can verify and you know, not just on my website, but by researching we- yourself.
0: Before we turn to your examples, Winston, I'm quite intrigued by all of this, but I would have supposed that Americans are more or less the opposite. Rather than supposing America and the rest of the world are alike, there's a tendency to presume that America is the exception, that things are different here. For example, that while conspiracies and assassinations that are organized for political reasons take place in other nations like England and Europe, that they don't happen here, which is part of the resistance to a conspiracy movement, but also that you know the U.S. is somehow better, uh, superior. Uh, I think it's very important that you make the kinds of points you have in mind because it deflates this idea of American exceptionalism and actually suggest that in certain ways other countries are more advanced, more progressive and have better solutions to problems than those we have adopted here in the United States
1: exactly and I'm really glad that you know you've taken the bold step in that in letting me talk about this because not a lot of you know conspiracy podcasts in, in the alternative media want to discuss this um But you're right. I mean, there is this American exceptionalism and it's been around for a long time. And in the past, it might have been true, you know, but um, the thing is, America is a very arrogant nation. We think we're the best. And, you know, there's there's no humility, humility anymore. Um, I I don't know if you grew up in the 60s or or before that, whatever. But, you know, in the past, there was probably more humility and, and modesty than now.
0: Well, I graduated, I graduated from college in 1962, Winston, so that'll give you an idea of the era in which I grew up, the 40s, the 50s. and by, uh, After graduation in 1962, I was commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps and spent the next four years uh, pursuing my obligations and responsibilities in that regard and then resigned my commission as a captain to enter graduate school in the history and the philosophy of science, I earned my PhD in 1970, so that's my background in a a nutshell.
1: Oh, wow, that's a stellar background, yeah, because, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about was how, you know, things have declined in America, not just economically, but culturally, spiritually, you know, morally, and you know, in terms of, you know, the media, and, and, you know, um, for example, you know, when you were growing up, you know, there was no trash content allowed on TV, you know, people what you saw on TV was generally very wholesome, and nowadays on TV, it's like 99% of what's on American TV is trash you know, whereas in the 50s, they would never have allowed that Um, so you've seen the moral degradation of of American culture Um,
0: well, even more profound than that, Winston is the moral decay of the American government and its adherence to the rule of law and, you know, of pursuing principles and aspirations on which this country was founded, all of which seems to have been lost, where we now are threatened with a, a police state, the militarization of the police, one manifestation where these events in Ferguson are really an alarm bell warning that things have got out of hand and that, that there may be a whole lot more of this in the offing if we don't take some steps to correct it. So I have seen a deterioration. It's also paralleled by the use of profanity in all kinds of sexual situations, a lot very explicit in a host of other issues on television, as you're suggesting, that has been, you know, a parallel component of the gradual decay of American culture.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: I, I mean, there were always... I mean there was always corruption, I
1: mean even a hundred years ago, but it's just gotten progressively worse and worse and um you make a good point that that about American exceptionalism because what's interesting is that there there's still a lot of people in America that assume that conspiracies don't exist, that we're not um privy to conspiracies, but you know, you you go to Russia and, and everybody knows that conspiracies exist. They're not as brainwashed, you know, as you know a lot of americans are but fortunately people are waking up too
0: and another form of that brainwashing Winston, is you're observing is for americans to believe that they they have a better solution to every problem and i think what you know the form of debunking on which you are about to embark is i think profoundly important in correcting those impressions and disillusioning us about ourselves i mean for example we tend to believe that we have the highest standard of, of medicine and health in the world. But, in fact, uh, when it term, we come to the statistics, infant mortality, we rank about 27th in the world. I mean, that's appalling. A nation that aspires to be you know, a good nation that, that promotes the welfare of the people. Uh, could not have a infant death index that is so appallingly low if it really were living up to its expectations.
1: Yeah, precisely, and, and not only that, but, I mean, you know, if you take all the major diseases like cancer, heart disease, obesity, those things are at the highest in America compared to the other industrialized nations. And, you know, people should be asking why, and not enough people are asking why. You know, I, I have some explanations why, and... You know, and that's just one piece of the pie, you know. Um,
0: Well, why, why don't we start with some of those you have mentioned to me before? Because I think they're quite fascinating. For example, about home ownership. I think this is a great place to start.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. See, what I wanted to talk about was some fascinating things that most Americans don't know about. And because, you know, people in conspiracy podcasts, they always talk about the government and New World Order, they don't talk very much about. Cultural differences, or, or differences between countries, and it's not really focused on. I mean, right now, I heard there's like five million Americans that live overseas, and a lot of them know the stuff I'm talking about, but they just don't want to bu- publicize it because they feel like you know they, it might spoil their situation if too many people knew about the stuff I want known. Because I want, you know, I want people to know the truth. So can make an informed decision.
0: Well, you know, Winston, I think part of the reason that the the comparative truth that you're discussing is not publicized is that corporations worry about losing their profits and they want to contain information, even the government, for example. These national health care programs, such as in the U.K., work like a charm. I mean, they're wonderful. I had... uh, very close friends who were involved in a head-on collision in the UK. They only survived because they were driving a Mercedes which is designed so the engine block will drop to the ground and absorb most of the impact. My friend had a broken leg and his wife a broken collarbone. They were given complete treatment in the UK. Excellent level of service and and as I recall they weren't charged a penny.
1: Yeah, and you could even see that documented in in a Michael Moore film called uh, Sickle. I don't know if you've seen that documentary. I have.
0: Yes, I think it's a masterpiece. But and yeah, it generated, a, you know, it was even generating conversation between the, the patrons of the theater who don't even know each other at the time. I mean, it was an inspirational film, but the mass media, of course, never picked up on it because there aren't profits to be made from doing things a different way, and where the pharmaceutical and And uh, for-profit hospital industry is a major player in American politics.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is insane, because the the medical industry, the healthcare industry in America, they place profits over health. You know, and that's the sign of an insane sick society.
0: They place profits over people, yes. Absolutely right. And
1: over truth, and over life, you know, it's just you know, crazy. It's insane, you know, and So, you know, America is is more insane in a lot of ways than than other industrialized nations, Um, especially, you know, those in Europe and the UK, like you mentioned. And um, if anyone listening wants to see the Michael Moore film, Sicko, uh, the last I've seen, it's it's still on YouTube, so um, you can check there. But it's definitely a must-see. And um, I don't know if you remember at the end, Michael Moore actually goes with a group of Americans to Cuba um, to get medical services that they could not afford in in America. Um, and then when they went to Cuba, it was like almost free. You know, it was subsidized, and you know they got the care they need they needed, you know, which they couldn't get in the U.S. So there are some people that know these things, and um, so that's one of the things I wanted to share with you. One of the three health secrets is that. When, you know, if you have, if you like, need an expensive operation and it costs thousands of dollars, and your you don't your health insurance isn't going to cover it, okay, you can go overseas and you know get it for a lot less. You know, sometimes for almost free. Um, even you know, though you're a foreigner. So, for, so let me give you an example. My native native country is Taiwan, okay, and even though. … the taxes are really low there. Somehow they have a – they're able to have a national healthcare system. I don't know how they can pull that off because you would imagine any country that has a national healthcare system would have really high taxes, And but they don't. So – you know, but the thing is, if, if you go there as a foreigner, you can enroll. Well, from what I've heard, you can enroll in this healthcare plan for like under 100 bucks. and if you needed an operation, it would be covered, and so you could get that done there. And you know, and that that's a great secret because if if more Americans knew that who knew who needed an operation or some expensive treatment, if they knew that it would help them, you know. But things like this are not publicized. You know, that could help people, and that's the tragedy. I'm I'm trying to get these things out so that people know that they can go overseas for you know certain health benefits, um, economic benefits, uh, social benefits. There's just so many things in so many categories that I could um, talk about. So, uh, yeah, I guess we could focus on that for now.
0: Well, uh, it's good, but I, I I like so many of the points you make here. That, for example, in America, most homes are mortgaged, which make their owners debt slaves. But in foreign countries, the situation is quite the opposite.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the, one of the points I was going to tell you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you see, you know what. When you're when your house is mortgaged you're a debt slave to, to pay it off and I, I believe the majority of homes are like that in, in America especially you know with the you know younger adults <clears throat> um, so you know they're essentially turned into debt slaves but you know when you watch documentaries like zeitgeist and, and others that expose the Federal Reserve they, they, they claim that because Americans are are debt slaves that everyone in the world is a debt slave so they um, they make that fallacy that Americans, are everyone else in the world are the same they interchange America and the world and that's just not true because in most other countries the houses are small, smaller than in America of course um, they, most houses are, are as big as an apartment you know several rooms but most houses are not mortgaged they're already paid off you know because the cost of living is lower and a lot of houses are inherited and um, just like you know, I heard that, you know, I wasn't around in the 60s, but I heard that in the 60s and the 70s, okay, even in America, um, a mortgage on a house could be paid off in a few years because things weren't not as expensive. And is that true, by the way? Repeat that, Winston. Yeah, well, I heard that back in the 60s and 70s in the USA, um, a mortgage on a house could be paid off in a few years. It wasn't because cost of living was a lot lower back then.
0: Well, I think most mortgages historically have been 20- or 30-year mortgages. I think a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is probably the typical in the United States. and I believe that, it's been that way quite, quite a while, but I freely concede that I wasn't involved in you know, financing homes in my youth, and therefore you could be right, uh, even though it's not my impression.
1: Yeah, because some people told me that in the 60s and 70s, houses were like $30,000, and you could pay them off a lot quicker. Yes,
0: well, well but you've got to realize with inflation, you see, a value of a home is that $35,000 home might be the equivalent of a $250,000 home or, or more today. So that you have to take into account you know, the role of inflation here, because the value of a dollar is a whole lot different today than it was then.
1: Yeah, and plus, in the 20th century, the dollar lost, like, 95% of its value, you know. But back in the 1800s, you could probably just build a home for free, you know, or it might just cost, you know, a few hundred dollars or something, you know. But, of course, you know, a dollar was a lot worth a lot more. But anyways, the, the point is, you know, I mean, most people are not debt slaves because, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, their homes are not mortgaged and probably, you know, they don't, need to, to get into
0: debt. And by most so, people, you mean most of the world's population. Yeah, or at least a
1: great deal, you know, because yeah. when are talking 200 countries, it's hard to
0: generalize too
1: much, but just, you know, a lot of countries you could name, you know, in Europe and Asia and Latin America. and
0: Another, another yeah, idea is, you've raised, Winston, is this, that that Americans seem to be very dependent on Psychology, clinical psychologist counseling the, the, the psychiatry, psychotherapy, and all that could you reflect on that? i I think this is really fascinating
1: yeah, this is a huge secret because I mean this is a shocking fact most Americans don't know this and they're shocked when I tell them about it, you know even in person, that you know it's very common in America to have to see a, a therapist or a psychiatrist or get antidepressants you know or go to a counselor and the statistics i've read said that one out of 3 people at least have seen a mental health professional and the world health organization even put out an article saying that if you grow up in america 50% you have a 50% chance of developing a mental illness you know so it's like half the people become mentally ill at some point in their life and this is this is you know the world health organization said that and i'll send you a link to it sometime so you can see it but um, so, yeah, I mean, America has the biggest mental health industry in the world and the, the biggest, uh, the highest rate of mental illness, according to the World Health Organization. And what most Americans don't know is that in other countries, I mean, it's virtually unheard of to have to see a therapist. I mean, people just don't do that, you know, because they don't go crazy. I mean, they may have a hard life, OK, but they always have family to support, them, um, even if they're... In poverty, okay, people have fam- a strong family network because you know, like if, if in America, if you lose everything and everything goes south and you become bankrupt, you know, no one's going to help you because it's like there's this mentality, like every man for himself, and the families are not very close; they're kind of like segregated, you know. It's, and you know, in other countries, they, they have this support network, so if they if things go south, people will help them. I mean, the relatives come and help raise the kids and. You know, and, and um, so even though life is hard, people don't lose it and go crazy. And there's just something dysfunctional about um, the culture Winston. we grew up in America. And I have some theories about that, but it's oh. it's really shocking. So,
0: Winston, let's let's take our first <laughs> break. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on the Real Deal, with my special guest today, Winston Wu, talking about some common misperceptions about America. In relation to the other nations of the world, we'll be right back.
2: Be my friend, I said. you to Dr. Robert. Day or night, here. will be there anytime at all. Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert, you're a new and better man. He helps you to understand. dr Robert, dr Robert.
3: Admits that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9 11. Our own FBI acknowledged it has no hard evidence that ties Osama bin Laden to 9 11. But if Saddam had nothing to do with 9 11, and if Osama had nothing to do with 9 11, then who did? Who did it? The 9 11 conspiracy provides the answer. Discover the big picture learn what we know now. Find out what it means. 11 experts contribute to exposing the truth as the anatomy of an atrocity. Edited by James H. Fetzer. Buy it now if you have the courage to face the truth. Just don't think you're going to like it. The 9-11 conspiracy provides the answer.
0: This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, continuing my conversation with Winston Wu. We're talking about misconceptions Americans have about their nation in relation to the other nations of the world and the quality of their lives. Winston, you were about to reflect further about issues related to mental health, where I was going to add that one of the key questions here, of course, is the very definition of mental health. I mean, just because you have unusual opinions or are stupid. Somewhat idiosyncratic. I mean, there's a high premium in the United States, it seems to me, on conformity, social conformity, clothing conformity, thought conformity, and, and, and that in and of itself is oppressive and not healthy. And where it appears that the government wants to exploit these fabricated events such as Sandy Hook and the Boston bombing to employ aggressive mental health criteria so that anyone who is a critic of the government or opposes gun control, for example, might in principle be classified as mentally ill and treated in an extrajudicial way very much to their detriment by depriving them of life, liberty, or the property without due process.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I mean... it i mean the psych- psychiatric industry profits from dispensing drugs so that's going to be their focus they're not going to look for you know an environmental cause and it's also a mind control thing because you know the us whoever ru- is running the us government likes to control people and the bigger the government gets did you know the us government has has grown in size like 10 or 20 times since the second world war and you know the bigger government gets the more control it needs in order to justify its growth and existence and so it's going to be looking for all kinds of excuses such as you know um, yeah classifying anyone who doesn't conform as mentally ill etc you know and but you know it's not just a label there are a lot of crazy people like you know in america you, if you go to the city for example or the suburbs you you do see a lot of you know crazy, depressed, looking degenerates everywhere. I mean, there are a lot of people that are, um, that have mental problems and because we live in, in a very toxic culture and if you don't constantly pump yourself up with positive thinking and and confidence, then you can, it's easy to slide down into a, a state of depression and, and, um, and, and negative thinking, so it's like you have to work hard, you know, and you know, in other countries you don't have to do that. So the the point I wanted to make about that the, that
0: is by the way related to the absence of a national health care system because many of those who find themselves, you know, destitute and homeless don't have the resources to the medical help that might make a huge difference in their lives, including you know, one would like to believe any kinds of uh, counseling or psychological assistance that they might need. I mean, it seems to me another sign of, as it were, the the poverty of America in relation to promoting the welfare of its own citizens.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the point I wanted to make is that, uh, well, I, I think that a lot of mental illnesses or disorders or, or, or just let's just say mental problems okay are created by a toxic environment you know I, I have first-hand experience of this because when I was you know in high school I had to quit school for a year because you know I could not stand it it was it was you know there was so much bullying and, and the homework and and you know it was just depressing not being able to fit in um, because Starting in high school, the way people act becomes very artificial and phony, and there's all these clicks And if you're a down-to-earth person or and a very authentic person like me, you're not going to fit in. So, um, so I started to have problems, and you know, my parents took me to a psychologist, and they said that I had OCD, you know, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. And they they started giving me drugs and stuff, and and it just made me numb. But the thing is. I took a year off and went over to Taiwan, you know, where where you know it it was a much more friendly and and environment where you know people were not as phony, and so all of a sudden you know it was that OCD was nearly cured there. I didn't need any drugs. All I did was remove myself from the toxic environment, and then the mental problems I had all of a sudden you know mostly healed. You know, and so a lot of times it's just the environment. That is causing that because we live in a very competitive, toxic environment. Where, yes,
0: Yes. yeah. So what you're talking about is technically known as a transient situational disorder, and frequently a diagnosis like that is, you know, of nonconformity or obsessive compulsion is made on the basis of social stereotyping and presumptions about social norms and expectations, where. It's transient, meaning it's not permanent. It's situational because it depends on your circumstances. Yeah, but I
1: was told that it it was permanent.
0: I thought I would have... Yeah, but I'm simply commenting on the actual situation you were in as opposed to what you were told because it, it obviously wasn't permanent. You went to Taiwan, and it obviously was situational because it did not continue in Taiwan, and it was a matter of not actually having a disorder but only something that was being viewed as a disorder by virtue of comparison with certain uh, social expectations of behavior that tended to impose a higher degree of conformity than is actually healthy for normal, ordinary human beings.
1: Yeah, and in my case, it was the the high school environment. I mean, my high school environment was very negative, very toxic, and, and it was like the energy field was very negative, okay, and the vibe was, and... I just did not know how to fit into that because I'm not like that. I'm, I'm a kind, sensitive type of soul, of person, and you know, I don't you know, jive with that type of environment. And you know, so I, I know personally that a lot of mental problems are environmental. And you see, the good news here is that if someone is listening to this and they have some type of mental problem, as long as it's not biochemical – it could be environmental, which means that they could go to a much friendlier, nicer culture overseas, and their symptoms could be either cured or greatly alleviated. And so that gives them a message of hope. But, you know, a psychologist is not going to tell you that because they're going to blame you and tell you there, there's something wrong with you and try to medicate you because that's where the profit is. And that's wrong, you know.
0: Well, the very definition of mental health has a awfully strong cultural or social component. Yeah, It's nebulous. Yeah, 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 yeah. And talking about mental illness, I mean, you know, people who have anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder or approach avoidance problems and all that, uh, it seems to me generally that the bona fide cases are far less than is widely supposed and where... You know, the medical community benefits from uh, over-diagnosis, over-prescribing. I mean, you mentioned the term mental health industry. I think that may be one of the keys, just as the pharmaceutical industry benefits from prescribing especially expensive drugs that frequently cost a fraction to manufacture of their retail value. It's uh, You know, there's a whole lot going on here that requires a good deal of, Analysis and consideration to yeah, take, and, take it you know, apart.
1: That's why I don't like to term mental illness. I, I like to term mental problems. You know, like I'm just talking about anyone who's suffering from depression, from anxiety, from unhappiness, or who's just a misfit, or who's just really lonely. You know, um, you know, I'm just talking about any of those people who just are not happy. Okay, that it could just be that. Um, and I'd just like to say, if anyone doesn't believe me, you know go to another country like France or Holland or Germany and ask around. Do you know anyone who's had to see a psychiatrist or a therapist and and you know you'll be surprised. I mean, pretty much almost everyone will tell you no. I mean, I mean that's just not common. It's mostly an American thing. So the good news here is that if you suffer, you can, you know, if you can't live in another country, you can go travel or or you know, live a few months in another country. Um I mean, even if you're not very well off, okay, and you're on a budget, you know, you could travel long term in other countries, like by using free accommodation sites like Couchsurfing.org or HospitalityClub.org. And now they have a site called HomeExchange.com, where, like, for example, if you wanted to live in Switzerland, you could contact someone with a house there and exchange places for a few months or a while or whatever. It would be like a swap. So you could live in their country, they could live in yours. It's called homeexchange.com. So there's many ways of doing it. You know, if you don't want to, if you can't live in another country, you could at least spend a few months there, six months, maybe a year, and your symptoms will be greatly alleviated. You know, sometimes you just need to get away from it all, and you know, traveling helps. It helps freshen your mind with new experiences and removes you from a bad environment at home. You know, if you're suffering from that, of course. So that's the good news. That's the something that'll help you know and the first thing was the the operations like like you could go to another country like my country Taiwan or maybe France or the UK and, and you could if you needed an operation you could um, get it done for a lot less or maybe even free um, whereas in the US you might have to spend thousands of dollars and so that's you know another benefit or like a health secret you know
0: Well, I think this is all very valuable. You've also observed that there are different standards with respect to GMO foods, which, in my opinion, is a major threat to the world. You know, the the, the dissemination of Monsanto or Archer Midland Daniels, genetically modified seeds and, and grains and so forth, seems to me to be a real threat to the world's food supply. And yet, here in the United States, they're allowed to be marketed uh, virtually with indifference. But I take it the situation is very different abroad.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's the third thing I was going to talk about, which is dieting and weight loss. Um, because you know, for example, you go to Europe. If if you were to go to if you were to go to France or Italy for a few months, Jim, I mean, after a few months, you would notice that your weight has become. I mean, you would lose some weight and you would become thinner. And you would feel healthier and more energetic, too, because the food there is more mostly organic and natural. It does not contain all those processed ingredients, excess sugar and GMOs. So, you know, you could just eat. You don't have to go into any kind of a complicated dieting technique. And you don't even have to eat less. You know, you could just eat moderate portions, even high portions. And because the food is organic, you would automatically become thinner and what's interesting is that you know how in in america if you want to eat organic food you have to go to these expensive health food stores and pay high prices well you know if you were in europe or or you know even in asia in china or russia there's no health food stores like that because the mainstream food is already mostly natural and organic because they don't you know, have so many chemicals. Like, for example, you go to China, you go to Russia, you go to uh, most countries in Europe. Okay, you'll see that. You know, people are thin. You know, they're not obese. We, there, there's not this obesity epidemic. And I have a friend right now who's in Italy, and he said that he eats all the pizza and pasta he wants in Italy. But Italy is like one of the most healthy um, places for food in the world. Everything is healthy there. They never. Put unhealthy chemicals in food in Italy, so he eats all the pizza and pasta he wants, and he doesn't, you know, gain weight. It's like he's still at a healthy um, body type. So this is a, a great weight weight loss secret. Like, you know, if you want to lose weight, and, and the diets in America are, are complicated, you know, you could go to a foreign country, and, you know, you you could lose weight naturally. You know, but of course, like like we said before, the diet industry is not going to tell you that because there's no profit in telling people to go abroad to to lose weight. You know, um, and you know, I'm sure you've seen how you know people look in China and Japan. I mean, they're just so thin. You know, they're just prickly thin, and it's it's just it's a huge difference than than in America, where because we're the right. fattest nation in the world.
0: It has a lot to do with promoting foods that contain a high amount of sugar in order to maximize profits, you know, get people more or less habituated to sweet foods or, you know, frosted flakes. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to like frosted flakes because they remain crunchy even when you put the milk on the cereal. But they're actually being coated with sugar, and therefore they're not really (laughs) enhancing your health. Yeah, you
1: know, it's just it, it seems like in America everything is overloaded with sugar and you go to the supermarket 90% of the food is GMO which is genetically modified organisms and I mean when they genetically modify that food I mean who knows what it could do to your body, it could break down your body and cause all kinds of illnesses and that's really scary. Um, you can go online and watch the documentary Genetic Roulette and, and there's a whole doc- great documentary about that for example but the thing is, GMOs are banned in Europe. You know, they don't allow that because, you know, European cultures are more sane in that sense. They don't—they're not going to allow something that's toxic and poisonous into their health. Whereas in America, because it's profitable, they allow it. And that's or that
0: potentially puts the population at risk. I mean, it seems to me, if you have products like GMOs, even before they've been thoroughly tested unless you could demonstrate that they are not harmful it's better to verge on the side of not providing the opportunity to market them when they potentially can have enormously deleterious effects which i'm convinced is the case with the overwhelming majority of gmo uh, produce and foodstuffs and, and and what
1: yeah but you know i i don't think That the reason America is a fat country is just because the food is addicting. I mean, that's a big part of it. But also, you know, people overeat because they're depressed and they're empty inside. You know, they, you know, it's like a lot of people are also lonely and depressed because, you know, it's not that easy to go out and make friends as it used to be. So a lot of people are isolated and then they overeat and that's another would
0: you you agree that this is in part a consequence of television which uh, you know tends to consume a tremendous amount of time television isn't a form of social interaction it tends to take the place you know instead of playing outside uh, football whatever with your friends and so forth you may be watching television instead and now today of course computers and the overwhelming range of computerized uh, activities you know Uh, iPods and laptops and go on to all kinds of Game Boys and the like. It seems to me there's more of an individual interacting with machine uh, prevalence of activity in this country than there is individuals interacting with other individuals.
1: Well, yeah, that's definitely a part of it. I mean, if you look at our society, for example, in in America, it seems like everything has gone down in decline except for technology. Technology is the only thing that's improving and it's like they want to turn us into robots and machines. And one of your other guests, Sophia Smallstorm, I think she mentioned something like that—that that they were trying to genetically alter people into robots or or some something, you know. And that's a scary thought. And and that it seems to be going that way. But you know, I I, I don't think that's the being absorbed to your cell phone is the only is the cause. I think that's a symptom, you know, because you know that's just a surface thing, you know. It, you have to look at the reason people would be absorbed in their cell phone you know it's that you see in America um, see America is a very paranoid culture okay when when you go out people are afraid of strangers they don't talk to strangers unless it's for business it's like everyone thinks oh if I don't know you you're a creep you know and um, and that mentality makes people want to you know escape into to a phone or something they want to Play with their cell phones because it's safer than talking to strangers. And you know, when I was I was in Europe, I was in uh, Russia for a year. And the the um, amazing thing about people in Russia is, I mean, nobody is afraid to talk to strangers. Everyone, I mean, there's no paranoia of other people. Everyone is just very open. And I could go to a restaurant by myself, you know, and, and people will socialize with me. They'll invite me to sit with them. And you won't see that in America because if you go to a restaurant by yourself, people are not going to talk to you. Only the waiter is going to talk to you, for example, because you know people. There's just this negative attitude toward other people, a negative social vibe that people, you know, just don't like to get to know other people. You know, there's like this social disconnect. And you know, I, I've been told by a lot of people that it was not like that before. In the '60s and the '70s, people were friendlier. And not as segregated and isolated. Like it was easier to make friends, but. um,
0: Of course, the population density was considerably less than two, and we all know that behaviors of of, of, of organisms are strongly affected by population density, among other factors. but there have been a huge range of social changes. I, it's certainly the case that, as I reflect back on my life, that there was a whole lot more social interaction of a more positive kind in the past than, uh, than might be the case today.
1: Yeah, so you, know, you grew up in the 50s and 60s and, and you must have seen that, that it was easier to make friends and the social atmosphere felt positive. It, it, it wasn't like today where everyone's, you know, afraid and you're, you're a creep. I don't know you. You're, they're paranoid, you know. They, not. Well, a
0: lot of this has been exaggerated since 9-11, by the way, Winston, that, that the government has been, you know, seeking to make Americans more suspicious of their fellow Americans. You know, we're supposed to be spying on each other and reporting anything unusual. And then you have the massive NSA surveillance of all our, our phone calls and emails and all that. I mean, it's absolutely unprecedented. And this uh, that, that, that total information awareness program was actually introduced by Admiral Poindexter in February of 2001, which was seven months before 9-11, although the claim is made retrospectively that it was uh, justified by 9-11. Clearly, that's not the case. The Orwellian language in, in, entailed by total information Awareness was modified by changing it to terrorist information awareness and it's still promoted on that basis but it turns out there are virtually no domestic terrorists in the United States at all. Uh, I have no idea how many times I've explained that a subcommittee of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs released a report on 3 October 2012 based upon its review of 680 fusion center Reports where fusion centers merged federal, state, and local anti-terrorist activity gathered between 2009 and 2010 from all over the country that found not a single instance, not one instance of domestic terrorist activity. Zero. Zip. Nada. Zilch. None. Which suggests very strongly, given the size of that sample and the range and in, in variety of conditions under which it was obtained, that there is No, or virtually no domestic terrorist threat in the United States. So what is this massive surveillance that's supposed to be seeking domestic terrorists when there aren't any?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the points I wanted to make is that everything is hyped and exaggerated. It's like a fiction, you know, everything in America is like a fiction, an illusion. And, you know, and and the paranoia is, too. I mean, people are paranoid for nothing. I, I mean, you know you know, you go out and say hi to somebody and, I mean, they might think, oh, who's that? You know, he's a creep and, and, you know, and it's just unnecessary because, you know, it's just all in their heads, you know. There's not really anything, you know, to be afraid of other than bad people. Like, I mean, of course, you know, we, we live in a tyrannical government, but what I mean is, you know, you should not be afraid or paranoid of your neighbors. They're just, you know, normal, decent people, but people are afraid of each other it's like a divided This, is, a, this
0: is like an induced paranoia induced by the government and it you know the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was bad enough by itself which of course was justified on the basis of 9/11 but 9/11 was a fabricated event as Webster Tarpley puts it in his in in the title of his book 9/11 synthetic terror made in the USA very apt very appropriate and we've been suffering from the consequences ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, a part of it. It's part of the big pie. And But I really think things got really bad socially in America since the 80s. That's where me and a lot of my friends pinpoint the change. Like, for example, I mean, between 1980 and 1990, there was a big change. I mean, people were just not as friendlier. They were much more cold and distant. Well,
0: Winston, let's take our second break and return to pick up where we left off. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, with my special guest today, Winston Wu, who has done a great deal of research on conspiracies. And toward the end of the show, we'll return to some of his work on those subjects, uh, but where he has been looking at differences between America and other nations of the world in, in the hope of getting a better perspective on where things stand here in the U.S.A., we'll be right back.
2: Los Paranoias. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Los Paranoias.
2: Invite you to, to just enjoy us. Come on, you can do it, baby. Come on, enjoy Los Paranoias. Just enjoy us, those paranoias, those paranoias, come on, enjoy us, harmony, those paranoias. Come on, enjoy us, those paranoias. (laughs)
3: By a meticulously executed conspiracy, conspiracy, which was obscured by an extensive cover up. Co- Murder in, in Dealey, Dealey Plaza, Plaza, edited by James Fetzer, goes to the heart of the JFK assassination. You'll read new and up to date information regarding the Secret Service, the Lincoln Limousine, the medical evidence, the cover up, altering the film, framing the patsy, and the silent historians. Also, 16 smoking guns, each one crushing the government's lone assassin scenario. A world-class chronology of November twenty second, 1963. Chapters by David W. Mantic, Gary Aguilar, Vincent Palomara, Douglas Weldon, Jack White, Ira David Wood III, James H. Fetzer, Doug Horn, and a classic essay by Bertrand Russell. The complete story in the pages of one single book, edited by James H. Fetzer. Read it now. Read it again. You'll use it as a reference. Murder in Dealey Plaza. Available at Amazon.com and major bookstores around the world.
0: It's murder.
1: Veer Radio is listener-supported. We need your donations to pay for live Internet streaming radio, our toll-free call-in number, and our website, free MP3 archive links and interactive forums.
2: JeffRick.com and click on the make a donation button. (laughs) in <laughs>
0: Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, continuing my conversation with Winston Wu. Winston, before the break, you were observing that you and your friends believe that it was in the 80s that things began to change. I'd like for you to elaborate on that.
1: Yeah, okay, I'm not talking about the government. I mean, there's always been some type of corruption and conspiracy in government, and, you know, there always has. It's just gotten progressively worse. But what I'm talking about is just the social atmosphere of of America um, you know, I wasn't sure if it was where I grew up or, or whether it was the country or not, but it it just seemed like, you know, in the early '80s, um, with the Reagan era, you know, the greed and the materialism all of a sudden went out of control, and somehow people just became a lot less friendly. Um, in the, so it was like they were a lot more cold and, and more mean hearted, and you know. In my experience, it, it was sometime during the 80s that there was a change for the worse because you know if you went back to 1980 people were still you know they still had this wholesome look you know like if you watch the TV shows from the 70s, for example, you'll see that people have had this more simple wholesome innocent look you know they didn't look as jaded or as toxic as you know for example in the 90s. So during the 80s there's there was a huge shift in the attitude. Um people were just not as friendly towards strangers, and um it was a lot harder to make friends you know after the eighties too so you know a lot of me and my friends pinpoint that as as where things went worse, but you know, you know there was a drug culture in the sixties and the seventies so you know it, it's in in a, in a certain sense you know there was a moral degradation that too there in the sixties, but you know it just became progressively worse you know because in the sixties You know, people were still – they still looked natural. They still looked kind, and, you know, there was more of an innocence than, you know, there is today. Uh, You know, today it's just corrupted and polluted. And if you look around you, it's like most young people seem to have tattoos now. They're mainstream, you know. Before, you know, only gangsters or criminals would have tattoos. Now they're mainstream, and, you know, that's the mark of a um, morally decaying culture. Tell me why you –
0: Tell me why you believe that to be the case. I'm in, in, intrigued because I've been rather surprised by the all pervasiveness of, of tattoos too, and and it, 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 I'm interested in your diagnosis or evaluation. Oh, about why there's tattoos? Yeah, no, why why it's a sign of decadence? Oh yeah, well,
1: you know, I mean, in the past, you know, having a tattoo was seen as repulsive. You know, it was, you know, if you, only gangsters and criminals. Have it. I mean, I I don't have tattoos, so I cannot relate to people who do. But what I what I've been told is that, um, I mean, what people will ta- with tattoos will tell you is that you know it's a trend, and people follow trends. They don't think for themselves. They don't have any inner principles. So if everyone else is doing something bad, they'll do something well, bad. Why
0: Why do you think tattoos per se or some are, are oh, sym- symptomatic of decadence?
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that. You're okay. Um, it, well, because. You know, if you you see your body reflects your your mind and your soul and your spirit, and if somebody's soul is toxic or poisoned or defiled, they want their body to represent to reflect the, the their soul, their inner and their their outer. Okay, so it's like you know, if, if you're poisoned or corrupted inside, you want that corruption to show. So it you want it to show on your body. So it's like a mark of what the, the person is like on the inside, kind of. That's, that's what I've been told, you know, by some people in my movement. Well, okay. I'll
0: just, yeah, I'll just say I'm not, I'm not, I don't find that argument convincing, and I do think there are a multitude of reasons why individuals pursue tattoos, not all of which are suggestive of any kind of problems, psychological, emotional, or otherwise. And there is a, the, the fashion and fad aspect to it, uh, which, of course, is extremely important in music and clothing and, and, and in other areas, which I would say no doubt is also true with regard to, to this particular issue, too. But, but Winston, I, I, I think you've done a, you, a wonderful job of talking about some of the reasons why America shouldn't regard itself as so special or spectacular, uh, because the rest of the world is really very, very different in these very important respects.
1: Yeah, that's just something to consider. But I wanted to make another point about tattoos. I mean I mean I, I can't prove what I said scientifically, but if you look at the data, for example, people with tattoos all over their body, you know, who, who have a lot, I mean if you talk to them they seem to be, you know, somewhat unstable and not meant you know, not down to earth or, or rational. They're not all together. And um and if you look at it, if you look at all the successful people in the world who are stable and rational, I mean, how many of them have tattoos? You know, like great great CEOs or scientists. I mean, I mean.
0: Well, you know, but most of them, of course, are you know, growing up in a different era. And, 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 and I just think that the tattoo thing is a it's 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 odd and peculiar and fascinating in its own right. But that the I think the other points you've been making are more important. I'm intrigued, too, Winston, how you mentioned in passing about you have a a website, Happier Abroad, that's really promoting the benefits of other nations and the kind of life they provide. Uh, But where I'm especially interested that you had a 4th of July special, Eight Reasons Why America is Not the Land of the Free, And I'd really value if you would go through those eight reasons. America is not the land of the free because we live too much a life of illusion about our own country. Would that be something we could do? Oh, of course,
1: yeah. I mean, that's an important article because, you you know, a lot of... I I mean, we're programmed and conditioned to believe that we live in a free country, but, you know, yet... All the evidence indicates that we're one of the least free countries. You know, for example, there's more laws and regulations in America than in other countries. That's why a lot of corporations want to outsource, you know, not just for cheap labor, but because there's too many regulations to, and laws and it's just excessive. I know some laws are are there to protect people, but you know, when it becomes excessive, you know, it's just too much, you know. Too much of anything is not good. And if you have too many laws, you know, you know, you have less freedom, of course. So, you know, how can the freest country in the world have the most laws? And also, the prison population in the U.S. is the highest in the world. There's like 2 million people incarcerated now. So, how can the freest country in the world, you know, have the biggest prison population? I mean, it, nothing makes any sense. It's like everything is the opposite of what you hear, you know? Um, and of course, like I said, the government has grown in size progressively since World War II, it's like 10 or 20 times larger than it used to be and you know the founding fathers always said that the government should be small and only protect civil liberties it should not grow and and start to interfere butt into everyone's business you know so you know you you have this huge monster size of a government and the highest number of laws um also uh highest prison population and and you also have a very high cost of living so you have to you know, the the typical young person has to work a lot more to pay off their debts and they don't have freedom or free time. So how what's the point of being in the land of the free if you don't have freedom to do what you want, you know? Yeah,
0: you know, I agree I, completely. I, sure, I, of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like what's the point of making a living if all you do is make a living? You know, you're not you're just running on a hamster wheel without a living a life to, to be making a living for. Um
0: so that's but, really the first point you make is that America has the Largest number of laws in the world, and the the more laws there are, the more restrictions and controls, which means the less freedom. Which is not a complicated argument.
1: Yeah, I mean that's just obvious. I mean, if, if you ask any Mexican immigrant who who you know has lived in Mexico and say which is freer, America or Mexico, they'll tell you, well, of course Mexico is freer because there's hardly any laws. You know, it's I mean it's a chaotic country. And what's ironic is even though Mexico has more crime and more corruption in their government and crime on the streets, the average Mexican is not afraid to talk to strangers. You know, there's not that paranoia of other people. They're still, you know, very relaxed and, and inclusive, and nobody, what the U.S. media won't tell you is that poor countries like Mexico, Philippines, Cuba, okay, they may have a lot of people in poverty, but nobody is lonely there. I mean, no, nobody is going to go psycho and, and do mass shootings or commits, you know, do crazy things, you know, and um, because people don't suffer from loneliness. It's easy to make friends. It's easy to talk to your neighbors. They'll your coworkers will invite you to your, their house for a barbecue. Coworkers eat together. You know, no people don't go other separate ways. Whereas in America, it's you know the paranoia creates an ice wall between people, and so you don't feel free because there's all this paranoia around you, and. That's something interesting. The media never talks about that because the media only talks about wars and economics.
0: The the second point you make, Winston, is that the size of the U.S. government has increased by 20 since the dawn of the 20th century. That's rather staggering.
1: It is, and what American historians know but probably won't tell you is that um, the, the ancient Roman Empire had similar problems. It started out as a republic and then it became an oligarchy of the rule of the rich and then the size of the Roman government grew and grew and so they need to keep taxing people and controlling people and by the time Rome was sacked in 476 AD a lot of people were actually um, happy in the Roman Empire that the Roman government was was, you know taken over and and fell because they were tired of being taxed and, and controlled and bullied around by their own government so when the government grows too big, you know, that's the kind of problem it has. And it's like a lot of things in America are paralleling what Rome went through. And, you know, and that's a really valuable lesson. But, you know, American historians don't want to, you know, don't want to talk about this because I, I guess it's kind of a taboo to...
0: Well, I think that, the, you know, the the example would suggest that America is in the advanced state of decline... And is not only going to, you know, lose its uh, influence on world affairs, but become really a destitute, impoverished nation. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think we're already well on the way, but the media and politicians especially don't want to acknowledge, even if the, these points are obvious to those who know how to read the signs.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, I mean professional historians should know this. I just don't know why they don't talk about it. Maybe they're not supposed to or it's just you know there's 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 kind of unofficial taboos, you know, you're supposed to stay within the boundaries of or you know no one wants to to you know be a dissenter because then they lose their job or their career. Too, you know there's always that factor as well. Um but yeah, there's a lot there's other reasons why America is not you know the land of the free. You know, you know. I mentioned cost of living. I mean, if you if you have enough money, you can buy your freedom. You can do what you want. You can travel the world. But it's hard to buy your freedom in America because most people are dead slaves, and you know it, it's just gotten worse over the last few decades. Um, for example, you know, in the sixties and seventies, you know, both parents didn't have to work. One parent could work, and the other could take care of the children. Now it's like both parents have to work because the cost of living is just insanely high and you don't have time with your family and you know it's just just not natural it's not a same Of course
0: and of course that's very bad uh, harmful to the children who are being raised in the family you know the parents both parents have to work much less time to devote to the children they spend more time watching television or potentially getting into trouble i mean it's a there the vast range of consequences that occur here and it just reflects the fact, you know, when corporations aren't willing to, to pay a living wage, uh, uh, that, a, that a, an earner should be able to make enough money not only to sustain himself but potentially to raise a family, which was v- virtually without exception the case in the, in the 50s and even into the early 60s. Uh, today really is markedly different in that respect, Winston. I think there's no doubt about it.
1: Yeah, you know, and it's not just economic issues or government, you know. I, I, to me, the biggest loss of freedom in America is that you really can't be yourself, okay? You can't be an authentic, down to earth person because the social culture is predicated on, on a lot of fakeness, a lot of phoniness, and, you know, the way people just act, especially the young generation, is just so artificial, okay? And this was true in the 80s, too, you know, like I couldn't fit into high school because i was too down to earth and deep and and, and um, authentic and what i noticed in russia and china is that you wouldn't think that china is a free country but you know in china there's no political correctness i mean you can't criticize the government but you know people you know you, you, there's no political correctness like in the social culture and you don't have to act like a phony person to make friends and to be accepted and to go out and have fun you know it's um, I know you, when you grew up it was different, but when I grew up in the 80's, if you did not have this personality, this phony personality you that everyone else did, you wouldn't fit in and, and you wouldn't be accepted, you wouldn't be popular and, and that carries on over to adulthood. And so when I was in Russia, I felt like I could be myself and I could have fun, I could have um, friends, I could you know I could date beautiful women and all while being myself, and to me, that was very liberating because I didn't have to be someone I was not. So being able to be yourself while, you know, getting what you want and, and having fun and feeling happy is the most important thing. You know, that's the biggest meaning of freedom to me is being able to be yourself and not having to try to be something you're not or pretending to be, you know, because in America, you have to wear so many masks, you know, to fit in, you know, like, for example, you're retired. So you could say what you want. You would have that freedom. But. If you're going to conform to like a social group or an organization, you have to adopt the personality of that group or the organization. You can't just be yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, in, and that's a little deeper, you know. So, you know, it's. But I, you know, I'm I'm a very deep philosophical person, so that's what I focus on. You know, like, let me give you another example. In, in Europe, for example, the young people they're also very down to earth and we can talk about philosophy, culture, history, intellectual topics and these are young people the young, young generation is interested in those things. You know, in America, you know, the young gen- generation is not like that is not interested in, in intellectual stuff, okay? They're interested in trash culture and the way they act is just very artificial. And so and this is true in the was true in the '80s too, and I could not connect with the young people in America. But all of a sudden in Russia and Europe, I could connect, you know, with the young people there and connect, relate to them. We could have meaningful conversations. Um, you know, for example, you go to a pub in in the UK. You know, people actually have intelligent conversations at pubs in Europe and in the UK. Whereas if you go to a bar in America, you know. If you try to have an intelligent conversation, it's seen as weird because you're, you're not supposed to be like that. It, you're supposed to go there and, and act kind of airheadish, you know. I don't know if you can relate to what I'm talking about because, you know, this is not, you know, talked about much. And, and usually, a certain type of people feels the same way I do. Okay, and so I'm sure like a percentage of your listeners will be able able to relate, but not everyone will because a lot of what I'm saying is not gonna be popular or accepted because it goes against the American mentality that America is a friendly, positive, free country, you know. So it goes against the mentality and the myth. Okay, so not everyone is gonna accept what I'm talking about, but I- I'm pretty sure a certain percentage will, you know, I mean I on my website I have a forum of, of, you know, thousands of people posting every day and they feel the same way I do. So definitely there are people that feel this way. But it's just not discussed on other websites and um, other forums. But I think instinctually, you people know at some level that there's truth in what I'm saying. Okay, I mean nothing is a hundred percent true or false. Okay, every belief has, has some degree of truth. Every observation has some degree. Put, and, put,
0: yeah. Put this point into a nutshell. How would you put it most concisely?
1: Well, the most concise way I would put it is that in most cultures the the culture is down to earth so I can be myself because I'm down to earth and I'm genuine and authentic. And so that to me that's freedom. I can be myself, you know, it's not just about government
0: You're really saying uh, American culture imposes a high degree of conformity upon the population that there are expectations of everyone acting a great deal like everyone else in certain specific ways.
1: Oh, definitely. But I'm just I'm also talking about the the plastic nature of, for example, when when you go out and your neighbors smile at you. I mean, the smile is not genuine. They're just doing that to be polite. Okay. You know that's part of the social culture. I say how are you? You have to say you're great. You know, if you go to Russia, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's no fakery there. Nobody gives a fake smile. So, if, if they someone smiles at you in Russia, you know it's genuine because people do not like fakeness there. And I was able to connect at a very deep level with people in Russia because of that. Um, so it's like what's interesting is like if you don't fit in America, if you're a misfit what you'll find is you may be a lot happier and fit in in a country like Russia, maybe France, maybe Holland. Um, a lot of people find that, that if they don't fit in here, it doesn't mean they're not going to fit in ev- everywhere or they have some problem. They they go to a, another country. Some people go to Asia. There's a lot of Americans living in Asia now and in, um, in China, Philippines, Thailand um, where the cost of living is a lot less and they feel a lot more comfortable there because You know, they can just be themselves and people accept them and people like them. They're appreciated for who they are. And there's just a a more friendly social vibe. People want to get to know you. You know, when I was in Europe, I I could be by myself. People would say, where are you from? And start conversations and, and, you know, they they were curious. They wanted to get to know me, you know. And that does not happen very often in America.
0: You also mentioned political correctness and the size of the prison population and those may be related I mean people go to prison of course by not conforming to expectations that are defined by laws and when we have more laws or more ways in which they can be violated uh, but of course we know that a disproportionate percentage of the prison population is a minority population which the Ferguson event again is accenting here in a way that may make it uh, a matter of Consciousness to more Americans than has been ca- true in the past. And, of course, the role of political correctness, I think, which reduces your ability to speak freely and honestly, I think that's a very important consideration true, uh, as well. And it also reduces your critical faculties because, you know, I think, for example, President Obama has actually not been subjected to as much criticism as he may well have deserved for the reason that he's black. And that, you know, most Americans are inhibited from being critical of a, of a man, especially one in a position like that, when he is black, lest it be construed as a form of racism, even though we know that racism, as Ferguson exemplifies, is still alive and well in the U.S. today.
1: Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, everything is interconnected, just like all the cells in your body are interconnected. All these issues are interconnected. The. Um, the political correctness, the prison system. Um, also, prison is a big profitable industry in the U.S. too, so they constantly need – they want to make more laws to imprison more people, and it's it's, it's just a crazy thing to want to imprison people more and more. I mean, it's like last I heard, like 2 million people were in prison in the U.S., and that's the biggest prison population in the world.
0: I think it may be uh, closer to 5, actually. Oh, 5 million now? Or? I believe, yeah.
1: Yeah, last okay. I heard – We can
0: check it over the break, Winston. This is uh, uh, most enjoyable. I'm very pleased to have you here. We'll take take our final break. This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal with my very special guest today, Winston Wu. We're talking about a host of issues that have to do with how Americans perceive themselves and where America stands in relation to the other nations of the world. We'll return right after this break.
2: Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Buy all the things that you should Do what you want to do And go where you're going to Think for yourself Cause I won't be there with you Do what you want to do And go where you're going to Think for yourself Cause I won't
3: Stem cell research, abortion, cloning, evolution, creation science, intelligent design, these are hot-button issues today, religion and science, morality and government, corporations and fascism. If you want to know what's happening to this nation this very day, then you won't want to miss Render Unto Darwin. After 35 years of teaching logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning, Jim Fetzer offers a critique of the Christian rights Crusade against science. If you want to understand the issues, if you want to be informed, this is a book you won't want to miss. Render Unto Darwin at Amazon.com and the major bookstores. Render Unto Darwin.
2: Yes, sir.
0: This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, concluding my conversation with Winston Wu about America, Americans' perception of our nation and its actual relations to other nations of the world. Winston, I did a check here during the break and found about the U.S. incarceration rate. This is Wikipedia, which on subjects like this is pretty good, on others uh, not so good. The incarceration rate in the United States of America is the highest in the world as of October 2013. The incarceration rate was 716 per 100,000 of the national population. While the US represents about 5% of the world's population, it houses around 25% of the world's prisoners. Imprisonment of America's 2.3 million prisoners costing some 24,000 per inmate per year in 5 0.1 billion in new prison construction consumes 60.3 billion in budget expenditures as of 2014 the high incarceration rates have started to modestly decline although they still remain the highest in the world and uh, back in 2010 uh, the the rate uh, the number of incarcerated prisoners was 2,266,832, but I'm quite confident that number, I mean, the suggestion is it may be slightly declining. I'd be willing to bet, actually, it it showed an increase. Oh, I see a chart here suggesting that in around 2008 began a slight decline. Well, that would be most welcome if that were the case. Your number, 2, two million, in any case, is closer than my conjecture that it might be as high as 5
1: yeah, that's a big difference, two and five, you know, but I only know about it because people posted it. About yeah, it. yeah,
0: yeah. I was estimating to be nearly twice as high. Uh, th- this sort of thing happens with other statistics, such as unemployment. The way that the Labor Department counts the unemployed, if you're no longer looking for work, you're no longer on the rolls of the unemployed, even though you aren't employed. You've been so unsuccessful in obtaining employment. Because of which the alleged, you know, unemployment rate is uh, really only a fraction of the actual percentage of the population that is unemployed. So in this case, it may be more difficult to fudge the statistics because, of course, you've got uh, all the warm bodies and all the prisons occupying all the cells, which are relatively easy to count up and tabulate. In any case, you make a good point. The U.S. does have the highest incarceration rate in the world and the most the largest number of prisoners incarcerated.
1: Yeah, so it can't call itself a free country. You know, that would be hypocrisy to call it the land of the free or the freest country in the world.
0: Yeah, it's very much an ideology, isn't it? What you're pointing out is that a lot of our, you know, our conceptions about ourselves simply are, are false. They're not literally true. And you can still take them as symbolic and represent aspirations of the nation, but they simply don't cut it when you start looking at the evidence to determine whether the united states is for example a free society and especially when you compound it with the massive surveillance undergoing by nsa and so forth the militarization of the police and a host of other issues it's very difficult to make the case that uh, the united states really is the land of the free and the home of the brave
1: yeah i mean it's like becoming more and more like a police state and you know sometimes i'm afraid to even go out because of that um it's like the only escape, you know, other than going abroad is to live in a rural area. Because if you're out in the middle of nature where there's not many people, the police aren't going to, you know, be around to bother people or ticket people as much. So, um, so you know, people like Alex Jones suggest living in rural areas, of course. But what, what's funny is that when I ask people in America why they think they're in the land of the free, they don't know why. They just assume that because the media tells them so that it must be true. They don't have any reason but i I think a lot of people are waking up they don't with all the police state stuff and the tyranny people don't feel as very free anymore so i don't think even americans believe it that much anymore that they live in the the land of the free it's they just pay lip service on it on the fourth of july and to other people because you know they just say that to go along to get along mostly i don't see how anyone could think that it's a free country you know i mean
0: Winston, please do continue. I know uh, the seventh of your eight points is that the social vibe in America is permeated with high levels of fear and paranoia, creating segregation between people and making the country socially unfree. I'd uh, love for you to elaborate on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, it's, it's easy to observe. I mean, you go out outside, okay, in, in most urban environments, you'll see that nobody talks to strangers, you know, unless it's business related. Everyone thinks that everyone else they don't know is is some kind of creep and nobody, you know people don't talk to strangers unless it's business related. So there's like an ice wall between people. And when I started going to overseas to like Russia and Europe and, and Southeast Asia, I noticed that, you know, people would talk to me freely. There was a positive atmosphere and they would engage me and I could Just social. I could go by myself anywhere and just socialize with people, and there was no paranoia about it. And I I can prove this because I filmed, I took a lot of video footage and uploaded it to my website, to YouTube, to Vimeo, and I posted a lot of it on my website already, where you can see me going overseas and just talking to people where there's no paranoia. Um, Like, like I'll send you links later, and you could see my videos, and you'll see that. You know, people are not paranoid to, to talk to strangers. You know? Are these
0: are these links on your website? We could, get, you know, we want to recommend where everyone can go to uh, happen happier abroad, for example. Are they linked there?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's happier abroad. Happier as I as an I E R happierabroad.com. And then um, there's a video section. There's a podcast section. There's a photo section. Um, I do have a lot of photos, and I'm in the process of uploading videos. But, um, but yeah, I have like some mini video series and documentaries of my trips overseas. For, like for example, in Russia, and I, I I didn't upload the ones from from the Philippines yet. But um, but I do have Russia, Eastern Europe, Poland, um, and you can just see it's a fun environment. It's positive. You you feel good about yourself. You don't you know feel depressed because. There's culture, there there there's a a warm social atmosphere. You know, in America it's it's pretty much like if you're alone you're not gonna meet people. You have to be in a group, you have to be part of a clique in order to meet people in that clique, and the clique is exclusive. So it, it just doesn't come naturally. I mean it's not easy to make friends, you know, if you don't have like if you're not well connected and it's not you know, you have to work at it. Whereas in other countries, you don't have to work hard to meet people. People will talk to you. And, you know, oh, and one of your other guests, you know, the famous Jesse Ventura, he he lives in Mexico, last I heard. I mean, he retired in Mexico. And I would be willing to bet that he would agree with most of what I say, you know. I mean, you'd think Mexico is a dangerous country, but if it is, then people like Jesse Ventura and pe- other people I know would not be living there. I mean, it's not as dangerous as you imagine. It, he li- you know, he li-
0: yeah, Jesse lives there half the year.
1: Yeah, and like you can buy a house there for really, really cheap along the beach, on the Mexican coast, yeah. and then you know you can just retire and have fun and do what you want, and you you know you, you have so much freedom. You don't have to. Sounds be a like
0: tech- a plan, Winston.
1: You have fun. You have sunshine. You have friendly, smiling people. You know you, um, you know you're just appreciated. You know, as long as you're a nice guy, people like you in most countries. You know, you know. Whereas if I'm nice in America, it's seen as a weakness. It's like, oh, what's wrong with him? He's supposed to be a bad boy. He's supposed to be an a hole, and you're seen as weak if you're nice. You know, and I I think that's dysfunctional. If you're nice and you're seen as weak and people tell you there's something wrong with that, that's the mark of an upside-down culture where good is bad and bad is good, you know. A nice person is a good thing, you know, and...
0: and Yes, And and the eighth and final may be a little more subjective than some of the other points you make, but you suggest that the... The uh, People in modern America seem repressed, robotic, and zombie-like as though they have no soul or were not alive. Would you like to elaborate on that one as well?
1: Yeah, you know, and other people in the conspiracy movement have, have noticed that too. Um, you know, people just, you know, part of it is the political correctness and, you know, and it might also I've heard that the fluoride in the water makes people passive and numb and zombie-like. It just numbs their senses. And, you know, there's paranoia. And, I mean, people just are not as, you know, they're just not as soulful and, and passionate, you know, as they used to be. Um, you know, and you can even see that in the movies. Like, if you watch modern TV shows like CSI or Law and Order, you'll notice that the people seem very cold and, and serious and gritty. I mean, there's just no um, warmth or, 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 or passion or, you know, there's there's no... Joy, you know, it's like people are numb. They just become more and more robotic. Because, like I said earlier, I mean, the only thing that's improving in America is technology and, you know, civil rights and political correctness, but people are becoming more and more machine like. And, but, you know, this is one of those things, like, you have to go overseas to compare. If you spent a couple of months in Russia or in Europe or South America and you saw how passionate and alive People were you would you would know what I'm talking about, but you know it, some things you have to experience. You cannot just understand with logic. You know some of my videos do show this, and and you know and you know I'm being honest with my experiences. So, um, so yeah, I mean you just have to compare, you know, if you've never left America you might not be able to see what I'm talking about
0: Winston, well, so this I'm has been very, very interesting, I'm sure it's going to bring about a lot of reflection on the points you've made in the time that remi- er, remains I'd like to go to your conspiracy trilogy report, the website is debunkingskeptics.com slash conspiracies dot htm where the first letter of conspiracies is capitalized. I'd like you to just give us an overview about the three big issues you discuss here, which, of course, are the moon landing, JFK, and 9-11. And and tell us what you think are some of the most important points you make here and, and why this is a valuable resource, because I'm convinced that this is one of the best websites we have available to us on these three issues, perhaps especially with regard to the moon landing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I put that together because I wanted to summarize the most strongest arguments that could not be refuted for those three conspiracy events. And if I was to put it in a nutshell, I would say that, um, gosh, I mean, the moon landing is most likely a hoax you know, I, I'm not pretending to, to know everything. I'm just following the evidence. But the moon landing just has too many, too much uh, discrepancies in there and too many unanswered questions. And it's just improbable. And I think the most important point is, you know, that if you, the photos are, are, you know, obviously faked for a lot of reasons, and the videos are too. And the fact that America hasn't been back to the moon and no other nation has even tried. It's very highly suspicious. And you, you, you want to know something interesting? I I said this on the Mike, palak Chuck Gregory show, but when I was on a road trip in New Mexico at the in Alabagordo, at the Space Museum there, they had a moon rock, and the staff person on the floor told me that the moon rock has the exact same composition as the Earth. So they've changed their mind about that. You know, they they used to say that the moon rocks were proof. Of the moon landings because it was different than the earth and could not be found but now they're saying it has the same composition as the earth because now their theory is that the moon came out of the earth during a planetary collision when the earth was formed so it's like they're waffling on that issue well, and well, really
0: the situation is a little more complex even because Werner von Braun led an expedition to Antarctica before the you know Apollo program was in place and obtained moon rocks that had been dislodged from the surface of the moon by impact with small asteroids and captured by the Earth's gravitational field. So he was able to gather genuine moon rocks, which could then be presented as though they'd been brought back from the moon. And they were genuine, but they had not been brought back from the moon. They got here by another more natural causal process.
1: Yeah, and so they've waffled on that. I mean, I mean, it's like there's so many discrepancies like this that you know that they've got to be hiding something. And that's also how you know the JFK assassination was obviously a conspiracy and a cover-up because, you know, from day one, they already made up their mind. There was no search for truth or investigation. You know, minutes after the assassination, you know, Jesse Curry, the police chief, and, and um, was it uh, Wade or whatever? Yeah, the, Henry was, Wade,
0: who was a district Henry, attorney.
1: Dallas District Attorney, they already said that the case was solved on day one, and and there's no way you could solve a case that fast. And so it's obvious that there was an agenda and and a patsy, and it was planned. And you know, the single bullet theory is ridiculous, and you know, the lone nut theory, you know, just just doesn't make sense. And the fact that there was a a suppression of evidence and, and and a jump to conclusion, and you know, and a, a massive cover up attempt proves that, you know, that they're hiding something. Because if there was no conspiracy, there would not be any suppression or cover up
0: You, you may this. be unaware of it, but the last nail in the coffin of the official account has been nailed by further proof that Lee Oswald was actually captured standing in the doorway of the book depository during the shooting in a famous photograph taken by AP photographer James Ike Alchens, where. If you study or compare the the height, the weight, the build, and the clothing of the individual in the doorway with the height, weight, build, and clothing of the alternative, who is supposed to have been Billy Lovelady, Billy himself said he was surprised they would be confused because he was two to three inches shorter and 15 to 20 pounds heavier. Billy was asked by the FBI to bring in the shirt he'd been wearing that day, which he did on 29 February 1964, and it was a red and white vertically striped short sleeve shirt, looks nothing like the shirt on Doorman, which is a very richly textured and rather worn long sleeve shirt, uh, which bears a striking correspondence to the shirt that Lee Oswald was wearing when he was arrested, as well as the T-shirt that is visible beneath the... uh, overshirt, which is slightly tugged at the neck, which was also true of Oswald, and where his height, weight, and build correspond very closely to that of doorman, but Billy Lovelady does not. Well, the argument had been held out by some who are well known in the JFK research community, in particular Robert Groden, who I was astonished to discover was assigned the task by the House Select Committee on Assassination when it reinvestigated the case in 1976-77 to determine whether it or not it was uh, Oswald in the doorway. And he claimed to do, have done a study of a, a red and black checkered shirt that was actually on another figure further down in the doorway area uh, who is much too heavy to have been the doorman and whose shirt is, is buttoned up right to the top and whose face, when you compare the profiles, doesn't look at all like Billy Lovelady, but who, uh, it has been insisted, was Billy Lovelady. And where Robert Groton actually took photographs of the real Billy Lovelady wearing what is presumably the same red and black checkered shirt in relation to his research for the HSCA, and Grodin claimed that when you study the patterns, that the pattern of the shirt that uh, Billy Lovelady was wearing was much closer to the pattern of the shirt on Doorman than was Oswald's shirt. Well, this has been shown to be complete rubbish. I mean, I never believed it, but Judith Very Baker, who had a relationship with Lee Oswald in, in New Orleans in the summer before he came to Dallas and was framed as the patsy in the assassination did it took a segment of the shirt on doorman a segment of the shirt on oswald and a segment of the shirt on uh, the robert groden photograph and did a pixel decomposition so that you know there's a, some distortion in the pixels but you actually look for any patterns that are retained. In which she did the de- pixel decomposition of all three, she found the match between the doorman shirt and Oswald shirt was very very close, but that the match between the doorman shirt and the Grodin shirt were completely different. That when that red and black uh, checkered shirt is de- decomposed by. Uh, pixelization really a form of magnification it retains patterns square patterns are completely missing in the doorman shirt so Judith was uh, concluded on the basis of her objective scientific research that the shirt on uh, doorman cannot possibly be the shirt that was attributed to Billy Lovelady which is like a sealing the case, because w- w- this, this, this Winston, has been the most tightly held secret uh, in the history of the assassination. There have been a number of students who realized, made the argument about it as far back as Harold Weisberg in his photographic cover-up published, as I recall, 1967 already, that it actually had been Oswald in the doorway, but the government didn't want to admit it. Uh, which we have now proven and where I published a dozen articles about it, but where the uh, consequences are enormous because it means uh, not only can he not have been the lone, uh, demanded gunman, but he cannot have even been one of the shooters, so that the entire Warren Commission was predicated on uh, fantastic hoax and deception attempting to frame this uh, innocent man who, by the way, has spent his entire career working for American intelligence, where he appears to have been recruited by ONI when he was undergoing recruit training in San Diego, uh, then did a pseudo-defection to the Soviet Union at the behest of the CIA. After his return, he wound up in New Orleans working with right-wingers, including a former FBI uh, agent by the name of Guy Bannister, where he was being given a a false persona as a pro-communist Castro sympathizer. And even after uh, his demise, the the Attorney General of Texas, Wagner Carr, launched an investigation and discovered immediately he'd been working as an informant for the FBI that he had informant number 179 that was being paid $200 a month right up to the time of the assassination, which uh, no doubt explains the bizarre situation that the federal government claims it can't obtain the federal tax return for the alleged assassin of the President of the United States.
1: Yeah, I, I saw your website on that, the Oswald Innocent Campaign, where, you know, you did the meticulous analysis of that, but I was also, you know, I was always wondering, like, you know, I, it was my impression that Oswald was in the lunchroom right after the assassination, so did no, he no, just no. walk from the doorway to the lunchroom right after that, or?
0: Well, there does appear to have been the encounter with uh, Marion Baker, a motorcycle patrolman, that occurred about 90 seconds after the shooting. But that was a short distance and easy transit uh, to make. But this is far more telling evidence, Winston. I think you're looking at yeah, looking at the Oswald Innocence Campaign. You haven't seen this more recent publication, which is uh, Judith Very Baker's Cements Oswald in the Doorway, uh, which has been published uh, just the last couple weeks uh, on Veterans Today. So... That, that's an additional element for you to integrate into your evidence about the conspiracy in the case of JFK.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there's just so many, so much evidence and, and so many things to, to, you know, talk about on that issue. But, yeah, it's like you found an Achilles, an Achilles heel or the smoking one of the smoking guns in the what, case... What-
0: Winston, tell us about your take on 9-11 before we conclude. I'm very interested in your more recent reflections oh, yeah. in a minute or two that remain. That is just
1: so bizarre. There's just so much conflicting data. But I think the biggest thing is the collapse of the Twin Towers and Building 7. The physics does not make sense. The physics of the official story is technically impossible, and that speaks volumes, yeah. you know, the physics. I'll yeah. just
0: mention, by way of closing, that I've just published uh, three new articles about nine eleven uh, in relation to Richard Gage's appearance on C-SPAN and the reason why it looks as though A and E nine eleven and even the Journal of nine eleven Studies are really part of a limited hangout operation, and where a new study of the Pentagon uh, shows conclusively. Uh, overwhelming evidence, no, no blame, no Boeing 757 crash there. And where since the Journal of 9-11 Studies has been publishing article after article that's, that claim that a, a Boeing 757 crashed there, uh, it, it causes, I think, many of us to reconsider our opinion and attitude toward that journal where back in the beginning I advised Stephen Jones that he was going to have such a journal, based upon my own experience with journals, which is extensive, that he needed to have a first-class editorial board. Instead, he appointed friends of his and colleagues uh, and did not accomplish the kind of quality editorial board necessary to sustain the venture, which I think, unfortunately, alas, has fallen miserably short. Winston, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Let me remind Everyone, uh, skeptics dot com slash conspiracies dot for your conspiracy trilogy report, or just put in Winston Wu conspiracy trilogy and you'd find it, or Winston Wu happierabroad dot com. Winston, it's a real pleasure having you here.
1: Yeah, thanks for letting me give me the opportunity to talk about this, and I hope it helps someone out there. You know, I hope people are helped by my information, and that it, it you know changes someone's life out there. Even if it's just a few people, it's worth it, you know.
0: This is Jim Fetzer, your host on The Real Deal, thanking my special guest, Winston Wu, for being here, and all of you for listening.